The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The Read to Lead Podcast, Episode 32. Hi, I'm Ken Blanchard, author of dozens of books, including The One Minute Manager and Fit at Last. And one way to stay mentally fit is listen to the Read to Lead podcast with my friend Jeff Brown. Employees feel like there's a gap between the stated values and the way people are allowed to behave. That's going to make them cynical. Cynicism is really the cancer that can spread throughout an organization. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now here's Jeff. Hello and welcome back to the Read to Lead podcast. And let me start off by saying I'm so glad you're here, especially considering I didn't publish an episode last week. When I made that decision, I worried whether or not you'd come back. So thank you for, for doing just that. I appreciate it. This is the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. In this episode, we chat with Adam Bryant, who is a New York Times columnist and author of Quick and Nimble, Lessons from Leading CEOs on how to create a culture of innovation. In Quick and Nimble, Adam draws on interviews with more than 200 CEOs. And today he'll share why the CEOs he talked to value culture so highly, methods from top CEOs on crafting values, how they handle the occasional rock star personalities, and a lot more. If you or someone you know has or is soon set to launch their own podcast, I want to recommend to you an awesome way to get started. It's called Podcaster Academy. It's a month-long online course for anyone wanting to master things like the art of sounding more natural and conversational, interviewing like a pro, and learning how to create an effective open and close that will get you the results that you need. Now, this online course has been created to enable you to learn the key insights, techniques, and habits that I've mastered launching numerous successful radio shows. The February class has already begun and, in fact, is sold out. But currently, new registrations are being accepted for this April. To find out more or to register right now, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash academy. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash academy. And save $100 on the cost of registration when you register before the end of February and use the discount code READ. That's R-E-A-D, READ. Save $100 when you use that discount code before February 28th. Adam Bryant is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Corner Office, Indispensable and Unexpected Lessons from CEOs on How to Succeed and Lead, or rather, How to Lead and Succeed. <laughs> he writes the popular Corner Office feature in the New York Times and has served as the newspaper's senior editor for features. It's deputy national editor and its deputy business editor. He was previously a senior writer and business editor at Newsweek, and he has just authored a new book released just last month called Quick and Nimble Lessons from Leading CEOs on How to Create a Culture of Innovation. Adam Bryant, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. 
Thanks very much, Jeff. We're so glad to have you here. And one of the things I noticed right away when I jump into your book, as the name and title would suggest, is the importance of culture, even over strategy. A smart strategy is necessary to succeed, of course, but culture, you say, is the X factor. Adam, why do the CEOs you talk to value culture so highly? Because I think they recognize that it really makes the difference uh, among competitors. I think people, when they look at companies, they always focus on two things. One is strategy and the other is results. But I think it's the culture that really drives the results. Um, And in some ways, you have to start with the culture before you get the strategy right and the results lead from there. So it's almost the reverse of how most people look at companies. And I just think it's, um, it's such a difference maker. I mean, in many ways, I think the analogy with sports teams is right. I mean, there's this expression in football of any given Sunday, uh, any given Sunday, one team can beat another. And I think a lot of it um, depends on teamwork and, you know, just how well people communicate. Is everybody in sync with each other? And I think it's true in companies as well, as much as we want to put kind of an analytical, almost scientific framework around companies, I think a lot of it comes down to that sense of teamwork. And you say that narrowing down a company's many priorities and strategies in Chapter 2 of the book into a simple plan is one of the most important roles that a leader has. Uh, What are some of the methods leaders shared with you on, on how they go about accomplishing this? It is hard work to make things appear simple. Um, simple is often very hard, and uh, I, I can't stress enough the importance of simplicity. At least this is what has come through so many of my interviews with CEOs is this notion of a simple plan, because I think it is a leader's job to stand up in front of the troops and say, this is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there. This is how we're going to measure our progress. And I think it has to be just three things or fewer than that, because most people can't remember more than three things. Um, The benefit of coming up with a simple plan is that everybody can understand how their work is contributing to that, uh, contributing to the overall goals. And if you don't do that, if companies, you know, have a whole bunch of priorities, I think that's when silo behavior kicks in, where you've got different departments and divisions, and they're kind of keeping their own scorecard and pursuing their own agendas. Uh, And as one CEO said to me, silos are what can topple um, the greatest companies. uh, And I really believe that's true. In terms of developing a simple plan, there's just no substitute for for hard work. Again, it is very hard to make complicated things appear simple. Uh, But I've heard a lot of CEOs, they just give themselves the discipline or what are the three most important levers that are really going to move the company? And they come up with sometimes interesting metrics, um, things to measure because, you know, there's this Peter Druckerism of uh, what gets measured gets managed. And I think that's really true. So you have to make sure you're measuring the right thing, because if you're not, then you're incentivizing the wrong behavior. I think I recall you even referenced a CEO who, when asked about, uh, it might have been core values of the company, there were seven and he had to look them up on his phone. Exactly. It, it is hard to remember more than three things unless you have a really clever advertising jingle behind it, like two all beef patty special sauce. We can all remember that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's funny, too. Is, as I read Chapter 3, uh, Rules of the Road, it was as if you were reading my mind. You, you, when you think about organizations developing things like values, It's not hard, as you say in the book, to imagine something right out of an episode of The Office. Mm -hmm. Uh, Among the CEOs you talk to, what are some of the ways they go about crafting values that are effective? 
I think the ones that do it right, um, it, it's a much more organic process. They they feel like they are putting into words the things that already exist in the company. Um, the way not to do it is, you know, you hire the consultant, you take the executive team away for a weekend retreat, play a little golf, do a little whiteboard exercise, and then you come up with kind of, you know, almost not that they're meaningless, but they're just not relevant to the particular company like, you know, excellence and things like that. So um, I think the best companies, uh, they, they, the values are very specific. Um, the list is short and they use them. Um, they go beyond just sort of having the posters made for the conference rooms and the laminated wallet cards. They really reinforce them at every turn. So they use the the values as the criteria for hiring. They use them for firing. Um, they hand out quarterly and annual rewards um, for people who really embody the values that they're they're trying to foster there. And to me, that's really the difference. Is you've got to live by them. It, and there's no sort of right or wrong way, no right or wrong values, but they have to be specific. You have to uh, enforce them and reinforce them every day. And the biggest danger. Um, for companies is if they go through the exercise and then they don't live by them because if if employees feel like there's a gap between the the stated values and the way people are allowed to behave that's going to make them cynical uh and as one ceo said cynicism is really the cancer that can spread throughout an organization and and that can be incredibly damaging well, in Chapter 4, as we move forward here, Adam shares several stories of CEOs who, in their younger days, had a, had a really bad boss experience. And in, in fact, I, I think you're probably the exception to the rule if you haven't yet had one of those. <laughs> Adam, for many CEOs, that bad boss experience seems to have, have paid off. In other words, now they've sort of learned what not to do. Would you say that's accurate? It really is. The the phrase that came up in so many of my interviews is uh, scar tissue, mm. uh, where the CEOs talk about just having this horrible boss who maybe humiliated them in front of other colleagues, uh, and they just had these really horrible experiences. Um, but for them, it, they were incredibly important lessons because in those moments, they said to themselves, you know, if and when I become a leader, I am going to do the complete opposite of what that boss did. So they were really formative experiences. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's just a broader life lesson of, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated. But um, having that really bad boss experience really kind of burns the message home of um, how not to treat people because they, they can remember so vividly how it made them feel. So they say, I will never do that. And a common theme with, with many successful CEOs is, is team over individuality. I come from a radio background, Adam, and, and radio is no stranger to the occasional uh, diva personality, as, as you might imagine. And, and I've worked for companies where that individual or individuals sometimes are able to to get a pass on things that, that, that you or I might not. CEOs you talk to, by and large, how did they best handle or do they handle rock star personalities in the office? Yeah, it's tough because they everybody wants the most talented uh, people out there, and especially in the tech space where there's a shortage of you know super talented software developers and coders. Everybody wants those people who can really add so much. Uh, but the theme that I heard is that you know, talent isn't everything, 
And because so much work is now being done in, in small ad hoc teams for quick projects, just that ability to be a part of a team and to be self-aware, to be sensitive to those often kind of fragile team dynamics, um, that they, they often value that more than just sheer talent. You've got to have the talent, but uh, they've just learned that putting up with a rock star, um, it's just not worth it in the long run because they actually do more damage and they sort of affect the people around them. So as much as you want that talent, uh, you have to recognize that you, it's just too destructive to the broader culture. Uh, chapter six uh, covers some ground that, that many people struggle with. I think this is common among all companies, managing conflict, giving uh, you know, constructive feedback, dealing with, with tattlers, what you call, Adam, adult conversations. What were some of the common themes for managing these areas among those that you talked to or, or were there? Um, there were many, and, and I, I do think that this is one of the biggest pain points for all organizations, um, having these adult conversations, frank discussions, giving people candid feedback is something that uh, a lot of people struggle with. I think there are a lot of managers who literally go out of their way to uh, avoid them, um, and, you know, I've done it myself over the years in my many management roles that you might have a problem and then you rationalize and say, well, it's just a one-off. Maybe they were having a bad day. There's this, they do it a second time and you go, you know, I really have to talk to them, but I've got these hundred emails to plow through. And then you put it off till the performance review nine months later, and then it takes on this sort of outsized proportions. Um, and having these conversations is stressful. Um, they are difficult. Uh, it can feel like step, stepping into a knife fight in a phone booth because you just don't know how people are reacting. Um, but I, I really think the best companies make it part of their culture uh, and almost train people how to give feedback to each other. And there are simple techniques. Um, I heard this great expression called, um, you don't go over the net. And metaphor comes from volleyball and tennis. Of course, you stay on your side of the net, meaning you never make statements that um, have implicit assumptions about the motivations uh, of the other person. You All you do is you talk about what you've observed, how it makes you feel, because that way the person can never argue with that. If you go over the net and say, you know, you come in 20 minutes late to work every day and it seems like you don't care, then you're going over the net mm -hmm. and they're going to say, what do you mean? You can't say that. Of course I care. Um, where if you know if you have that same conversation, say notice you're showing up 20 minutes late to work every day, it makes me feel like you don't care. Then that person can't say you know immediately jump to arguing because they can't argue with what you're feeling. So um, I've talked to companies where they have volunteer committees of employees who learn the art of giving feedback and then they train their colleagues because if you can have a culture where people feel like they can talk to each other uh, about tough issues um, that can just release so much energy that otherwise just get gets kind of corked up um, and as one CEO said to me he said you know 80% of being an effective manager is just being able to have those conversations and and have them effectively and I really believe that and these concepts of communication apply to marriage too so don't forget to, yeah. to put them to my <laughs> Exactly. Trust me, I know that one for sure. I, I was fortunate enough to have a leader who was very good about saying to those he led, 
always, uh, when you're giving someone an annual evaluation, there should never be anything on that evaluation that is a surprise to yeah. them. Uh, and, and, and that went a long way with me in remembering that I can't, like you said, I can't hold on to that thing or, or put it off until the annual evaluation because then it's a surprise and that's not fair to the, to the employee. Exactly. And, and one CEO I talked to just had a good rule of thumb. He says when he hires somebody, he says to them, hey, look, it's my job to give you feedback. I'm going to give you a lot of feedback. When you do something well, I'm going to tell you. And when you do something you could have done it better, I'm going to tell you. And I'm going to do it in the moment. And with that approach, he said people get desensitized to it. Um, and to me, that's a really insightful uh, notion because it, it is funny about feedback in the context of work because when we're growing up as you know, teenagers and in college, we're getting feedback all the time. You're getting feedback from teachers. You play football after school or you dance. You're being corrected by the coaches and the instructors. Um, yet in the workplace, um, you know, somebody says, I'd like to give you some feedback. And people go, whoa, 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 whoa. What's this feedback thing? Um, and I think you know, people have a lot of their self-image and everything else and their livelihood and the prospect of promotions wrapped up at work. But so that's why it's more important to just desensitize the whole thing. So a lot of feedback is good. I heard a great expression um, called the puppy theory of giving feedback, mm. which is that you always, um, you know, give people feedback in the moment. So, you know, if a puppy pees on the carpet, you don't wait two days to chastise the puppy because um, it's going to look at you like what's going on. So I thought that was a clever expression. I'm all about puppies. So anything having to do with that <laughs> sticks with me. You mentioned uh, earlier about, you know, uh, as managers or anybody, really, we can, we can often be dealing with hundreds uh, of email a day. I, I was guilty when I was in the traditional workforce of relying on email, I think, far too heavily. In fact, I had an employee once say to me, he couldn't get over how much we relied on email as a company and that there was so much of it to sift through, it was difficult for him to do his job. And, and my response at the time was, as his supervisor, I liked having that, that uh, proverbial paper trail of everything we mm -hmm. talked about. Now, after more than a couple hundred interviews, Adam, what are some of the hazards of email that you've uncovered? Um, I think the paper trail um, is is a good example of how email can be used. You know, you have a discussion with somebody and you follow up with an email and say, hey, just want to review what we discussed and get it down so everybody's on the p same page. Um, so there are good uses for email, but I've come to appreciate um, really the dangers of email. And it is funny how email was invented as a productivity tool, um, but I think it can actually end up uh, chewing up a lot more time because of uh, misunderstandings and miscommunication. Um, people send really simple emails that they feel are as you know, clear as day in terms of the attended meeting. And then they get an email back and the person has completely misread it and that can lead to arguments and then you chew up a whole afternoon kind of fuming about stuff. Um, and I really believe that a lot of the times problems can be solved in 60 seconds when you're dealing with somebody in person, but with email, things can be misread. Um, the tone isn't quite clear. Uh, and to me, the broader cost to an organization, if you think of, culture is kind of the the sum total of all the relationships of people you know with each other at work so if it's about the relationships then email i think does you know very little to nothing to build relationships um but in fact can more likely damage whatever connective tissue is there in the first place um because this 
to me, the best phrase I heard was things get lost in translation and emails. Um, and I think that you really have to be deliberate about what you use email for. I've talked to CEOs who have a very explicit policies about you can't argue over email. If you have two back and forths and you're disagreeing, then you've got to you know, either pick up the phone, walk down the hall, get on Skype, and then you can solve things right away. And the other danger to me with email is that as one leader uh, said to me that email taps into a really bad part of our brain, which is the the need to have the last word when you get into arguments and things just get kind of escalated over email. You know, as an entrepreneur, I've uh, finally found that I can put into practice what the experts say I should be doing with email, and that's checking it at specific times, maybe two or three times a day. I found that you know, in the traditional workforce, that was very difficult to, to get away with, for lack of a better way of putting it, because of the expectations of others. Uh, someone could send me an email, and, and if I hadn't responded you know, five minutes later, they might be standing at my doorstep wanting to know the answer. How, how do CEOs typically deal with that? Well, it is hard because they do get so much of them. And I, I do think, like you said, they, they often set aside certain times of the day to, uh, uh, to address them. And Jeff Weiner at LinkedIn has this interesting rule about email. He says, everybody complains about how much email they get. And, and his answer is that if you want to get less, fewer emails, um, there's a simple way to do that, which is send fewer emails uh, <laughs> because, you know, things can often turn into loop the loops of multiple replies. And uh, and I think that's a good rule of thumb, you know, because if, if you do, you pick up the phone or something, sometimes you can just solve things right away. And also just be incredibly deliberate, not only in terms of tone, but you know, shouldn't be any uh, longer than it needs to be. There was one CEO who has a rule in his company. He said, if if your uh, email can't fit on my iPhone screen, um, <laughs> if I have to scroll down to read it, I'm not going to read it. And I think that's a great rule of thumb too. Because then it becomes more like text messaging, you know, rather than hope you had a great weekend and all that other stuff. I like that rule. I'm going to remember that one for sure. And we've touched on much of what is in part one of Adam's book, uh, Setting the Foundation. Uh, Part two will leave to to further reading called Taking Leadership to the Next Level. And Adam touches on things like knocking down silos, uh, the art of smarter meetings, surfacing problems, uh, building better managers. Before we move on to some other questions not directly related to the book, Adam, is there anything else you'd like to share about the book or anything from part two that we haven't covered? There was one great insight that I have to say has really stayed with me, and it's called the Rule of 24. Uh, and it's this, that if, if you're in a leadership position and somebody comes into your office and says, you know, I've got this great idea, I want to bounce off you. Um, when you're in leadership roles, very often you feel the need to be decisive. You know, people bring you questions all day long and you go, yes, no, vanilla chocolate. And you just get in this rhythm like, that's a good idea, that's a bad idea. And the Rule of 24 is that if somebody pitches you an idea is to wait 24 seconds before you respond. Mm. And then if you can wait 24 seconds, wait 24 minutes before you respond. And if you can wait that long, wait 24 hours. And the whole point of it is to, you know, not do that sort of knee jerk. It's been done before. That doesn't make sense because usually there's a germ of something Mm. in the idea. And uh, this one CEO kind of has adopted that as the rule. And, And I think, you know, not only can you sort of bubble up great ideas that way, but it also it's a sign of respect to the people who bring the ideas to you that you're really listening to them and really considering them. 
Well, you've talked to a lot of CEOs between your two books and, of course, your corner office column in the New York Times. So this is going to be a, maybe a bit of a tough question. But among all the leadership lessons you've come to appreciate, Adam, if you had to narrow the list down to one thing or, or one central idea, what advice would, would you give? Oof, that's a tough question, Jeff. Um, if I had to uh, make a list of literally the most important qualities of effective managers and leaders. Um, and I, I think the thing that I would put at the top is the word trust. Mm. Um, because I don't think you can be an effective leader or manager if people don't trust you. And I think trust is one of those words that, um, has large and small implications. Uh, it's, you know, everything from, you know, do I have your back? Am I looking out for you? Um, do I have the best interests of the organization at heart? Am I going to do what I'm going to say? Um, all those things are manifestations of this broad word trust. But I also think it's something that everybody feels at a gut level. Um, I teach a leadership course, and last fall I had 36 students, and they're all in full-time jobs. Um, I teach the course on the weekend. I said, how many of you trust your boss? Don't even think about the answer. They didn't have to. Have, about half the hands went up. Mm. Um, a CEO I interviewed says he put on an employee survey, um, do you trust the CEO? His name is John Duffy. So the question is, do you trust John Duffy? And it was anonymous, right? And I just think that's really powerful because, again, to me, it's one of those things that you can't be an effective leader if uh, people don't trust you. Excellent advice. Uh, working for the Times, of course, you've had the opportunity to impact a lot of people with your work. So uh, at the end of the day, what do you hope Adam Bryant's legacy to be? Um, I appreciate that question very much. Um, I, I want to open up the conversation about leadership uh, because I think for uh, very often um, – there was a sort of sense that only kind of CEO, uh, consultants and professors and the like uh, were the sort of CEO whisperers. Um, mm -hmm. They understood what CEOs thought. And I hope my contribution is just to open up the conversation. And um, I guess the second thing is that I believe that leadership is personal and that we all have to make sense of it for ourselves. And while I understand the desire to put a kind of conceptual or analytical framework about around leadership and say, do it this way and create diagrams. Um, I really think it's something we all have to make sense of for ourselves. Uh, and I'm hoping that by now with more than 300 interviews and in the archives uh, on our website, um, what I hear from a lot of people is just they, they use bits and pieces from all the different interviews and then they use those to build their own leadership philosophy. And, and I think that's the way it works because people have to be authentic because if you're not, people will sense that from a, a million miles away. So leadership can't be like a suit you you know, buy off the rack and put it on. It's It's got to come from within. Well, in that the Read to Lead podcast, Adam, is a podcast that espouses the, the benefits of intentional and consistent reading and the role that it plays in your success in business and in life. Uh, name for us a couple of books you've read in the last few years that have had an impact on you and share maybe how or why they impacted you as they did. Sure. Um, I would say one is a book by David Rock called Your Brain at Work. Um, and obviously there's an intended double meaning in that mm -hmm. title, but uh, he studies the world of neuroscience and pulls out insights that are 
really great for understanding not only how you know your brain operates at work, but also how people operate in um, social and organizational settings. And uh, and he's created a, a framework and a lens on the world that I find very sticky and and very insightful. Um, I think the other book that I read that has really stayed with me is um, Tony Shea's book, uh, the head of Zappos, called Delivering Happiness. And it's the kind of book that I would give to um, you know somebody in their 20s because he's got so many rich lessons in there about building companies and culture and the like. But it's it's also just a a great reminder of how all our you know, all our careers are ultimately sort of very personal journeys that are filled with serendipitous turns. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's a great read. Well, good advice. I appreciate both of those. I've read uh, Delivering Happiness. I have not read the other one, so I'll be sure and check that one out. Well, before we wrap up, Adam, uh, what's on the horizon for you? Obviously, the book just came out a month ago. Can you tell mm-hmm. us uh, what we should be on the lookout for next? Um, I've got a few things cooking. Uh, the One of the things I did when I launched Corner Office was... Um, uh, I set some guidelines for myself, and one of them was that I was going to interview a lot of women. And uh, first off, and but secondly, I was never going to ask them any gender-specific questions. I was going to ask them the same questions that I do uh, of all the the men I interview. Uh, and a lot of the women that I've interviewed, um, more than a hundred by now, uh, have told me they appreciate that. Mm. Uh, last fall, I did a big cover in the Sunday Business section where I went back to. Uh, for the women I had previously interviewed, we had a second conversation, and I was asking them for their insights, um, their advice for other women. Uh, but in the context of work, uh, I didn't ask them any questions about work-life balance. Um, not that I don't think it's important, but I feel like there's a new conversation to have with women executives about their advice in the context of work. And mm. just heard so many great insights. You know, as one example, one of the women said that she notices that other women uh, at work hoard their political capital um, sort of like airline miles <laughs> in the sense that with airline miles, you're always saving and saving and thinking, I'm going to cash these in for the perfect trip. And then you never do. And her advice to women was, you've got to spend the political capital. You've got to get in the game. Um, and so I'm, I think there's more conversations to be had, uh, a second conversation with the, again, more than 100 women I've interviewed so far. Well, we're excited about the book. I wish you much success. Uh, Adam, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for giving of your time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jeff. Really enjoyed the conversation and great questions. If you'd like to connect and network with a New York Times bestselling author, and in this case, a New York Times columnist, Adam can be reached on Twitter at NYT Corner Office. That's at NYT for New York Times Corner Office on Twitter. And don't forget to let him know what you thought about his guest spot on the Read to Lead podcast. We make it easy for you to find everything you need to know or want to follow up on today's episode at our website. There's a blog post we call it the show notes page dedicated to this episode, and you can find it at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 032 for episode 32. Don't forget about our sponsor, Podcaster Academy. Use that special discount code READ before February 28th and save $100 off your registration. Read to leadpodcast.com slash academy to find out more. And finally, if I could ask one thing of you, it would be to consider rating and reviewing the podcast. This helps keep the podcast visible and get noticed by new people. And if you give it a five-star rating and leave a review, I'll be sure to mention you in an upcoming episode as a small way of saying thanks. 
to rate and review the podcast, you can do it a couple of ways. Readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes or readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. Well, that does it for this week. I certainly hope to see you next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com and chat with other members at facebook.com slash readtoleadnation. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Some folks like to get away, take a holiday from the neighborhood. Hop a flight to Miami Beach or to Hollywood. I'm just taking a greyhound on the Hudson River lines. I'm in a New York state of mind.